Have you ever found two things that just seem to go together in life, right? Have you found those two things? For those of you who are romantic, you're thinking about your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend right now. You know what I'm thinking about? Peanut butter and chocolate, right? (laughs) Peanut butter and chocolate, like they were meant for each other. I'm not sure how either found its origin, but when they came together, there was this ultimate bliss for the world. But then there are things in this world that kind of just don't go together, right? Like oil and vinegar, or you know I'm about to go here, right? Like the eagles and the cowboys. And if you're so sick of my eagles-cowboys analogies, I spent a year in Chicago, and man, do the White Sox and Cubs fans really dislike each other too. So it's not just a Northeast thing, right? Everyone is super nice and happy in the Midwest until you reveal your baseball affiliation, and then things go south. Or let me get real personal with you for a minute. Two things that just kind of don't go together is the electric guitar and the trombone. Now, some of you are chuckling because you know where this comes from, right? There was that small run of music in the mid-90s called ska. You remember that? Where people thought, let's get brass instruments and rock and roll together. And it's okay. I'm not against that. But in my house at any given moment, in the upstairs, our noise is coming from one of two directions. Tyler's room and Jackson's room. And one is a trombone playing marching band music, which is fantastic. Jack is a, is a, is a wonderful musician. And the other is, is rock, <laughs> an electric guitar coming from Ty, and Ty is a great musician as well. Uh, but those two things, when you're trying to read and prepare a sermon even, don't always make for a perfect blend of things, right? I'm already making excuses for what you're about to hear. Or let me give you one last personal illustration. You know what do, two things that don't go together? Broccoli and absolutely everything. (laughs) Now, oftentimes in the church world, there are some things that people don't think go together. And it oftentimes goes like this, like uh, a casual, relaxed, inviting atmosphere. That doesn't go with like depth or or belief or or truth and, 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 and heavy lifting. Uh, You could say you can either as a church choose to be really informal, casual, inviting, but when you do that, you sort of leave behind depth of teaching and and doctrine and and understanding. Or you can say, no, 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 that stuff is so important, we've got to go there. And what ends up happening is you create environments that are hard for people to get into. And what we want to say here at Hope is that we actually don't believe those two things are mutually exclusive. We actually believe they're much more like chocolate and peanut butter than broccoli and just about anything else. (laughs) So much so that when we've created four key priorities that that govern how we live out our call as a church, one of them is the combination of these two ideas. It's what we call casual depth. Now when I say casual depth, this is what I mean. We embrace a relaxed atmosphere, a setting and structure that are easy to enter, and a place where everyone is welcome and accepted just as they are. No matter where you are in your spiritual journey, whether you've been following Jesus for years, whether you are a hardcore skeptic, or whether you're just trying to sort some things out, you're welcome here. At the same time, we believe that the best things always grow deep. So we pursue depth in faith, teaching, and relationships, and we call each other to it. 
Perhaps we could summarize this statement with two very simple statements that give us a sense of purpose, why we embrace this. The first is, it should not be hard to meet Jesus. But the second is, it is hard to stay with Jesus. (laughs) And those two things seem to be at odds, and yet if you read any of the teaching or the narratives about Jesus in the Gospels, you find this tension played out all of the time. It shouldn't be hard to meet Jesus. There should be no obstacles to meeting Jesus. Absolutely none. However, it's super hard to follow Jesus. And so unless you go deep, you will be pulled away or swayed. So we're going to spend the rest of the time that we have together this morning trying to understand from a biblical perspective how we arrive at these two statements and how we have then adopted this idea, this ethos, this culture here at Hope that we call casual depth. So let's take the first one. It says it should not be easy to follow Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, all too often, Christians individually and churches collectively erect all kinds of boundaries and block people's view of who Jesus actually is. This is just an honest and true assessment. Have you ever been driving uh, from here to Manhattan, right? And you're just really excited when you make it there because 78 has been miserable the whole way there. And you know you're getting close because you can start to see the defining skyline of New York City, right? And you see the Freedom Tower. And you see the, 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 um, the Statue of Liberty. And you see, um, why am I forgetting the one that everyone knows that's in Midtown? The Empire State Building, thank you. Like, that's duh, Adam. I told you, trombone and electric guitar, right? You just always remember that as you're processing this. You see them, right? And it's like, oh, yes, that's it. But what's fascinating is that when you get to the city and you go inside the city, you know what you can't see? These big buildings that tower over everything because you're surrounded by all of these other buildings around you. My fear is that often as followers of Jesus in our individual lives and as a church collectively, us put together, that we often give people such a crowded view that they can't see the Jesus that they're actually coming to see. We shouldn't make it hard for people to meet Jesus. All too often, the church will erect one of two kinds of barriers or buildings or however it works. And perhaps this is an over uh, summary, but you get my gist here. The first is what I call a boundary of formality, right? There's just ways the church does stuff. Uh, And what ends up happening is it becomes stodgy and and difficult and and uninviting and and hard for people to get in, whether that's uh, requiring a certain appearance or dress, things you have to dress, or or even the architecture of facilities that we're calling people into, or or the, the liturgy. You know what I mean when I say the word liturgy? Kind of like the way the worship gathering plays out. It's very formal, and and what it becomes is very hard to enter into, and and, and these things which were originally created in order to help people see Jesus have actually become buildings that challenge our view of Jesus sometimes. You see this? Or, sometimes the church erects what I'll call religious boundaries. Now, some of you are like, you talk so much about religion here, Adam. 
And isn't what we're doing religion? Well, yes and no, right? What I mean by religion, whenever I say the word religion, especially in a context where we're speaking against it, is the idea that we've got to do all the things so that God's happy with us, right? We jump through all the religious hoops. We read our Bible. We come to church. We say our prayers. We try to live good lives so that God will be on our side, right? That's religion, and it's antithetical to the Gospel. The Gospel says God is on our side, therefore we live a different way. You see this? Now, religion gets corrected as boundaries within our lives in the church. It becomes difficult for people to see Jesus because we begin to expect of people that they have a certain moral code, or they have a certain religious background or understanding, or they can dot the I's and cross the T's of the theological things we expect them to know, or they have a certain lifestyle or certain commitments in their life already. And what we're really doing is making it difficult for people to meet Jesus. In its worst expressions, these religious boundaries happen in the form of hypocrisy and judgment and condescension, where people just trying to figure out who Jesus is, their first view of them is through you and me looking down our nose at them. All too often, we, and, and I'll give us the benefit of the doubt, with good intentions, erect boundaries that actually make it harder for people to meet Jesus. You know what the truth of the matter is? This isn't new to us in 2022. This has been a struggle for the church since the very beginning. In fact, you only have to look a couple years after the resurrection of Jesus and you find the church is already struggling with this. They've already built systems and structures that in, in ways are keeping people from meeting Jesus. So, to understand this, we have to think a little bit about the culture in the first century world of the church. Many of the first people who are coming to faith in Jesus, who are seeing and believing the resurrection, and therefore embracing Jesus as the Lord of all, are doing so out of a Jewish culture. And so they're bringing with that to the church a sort of set of formality and religion. And early on, then, when the church, initially because of persecution, but ultimately because God begins calling people out to it, when the church gets beyond that culture and starts connecting with people, and people are responding to the Gospel because it's what their heart longs for, true peace, true life, a Lord who is good and not dominant and, and, and overpowering and, and, and hurtful and corrupt, when they're responding to this, they're meeting the hurdles and the boundaries. They're seeing the Manhattan skyline up close instead of from a distance because people are beginning to say, yeah, but if you want this, you've got to get Jewish first. <laughs> you've got to follow our culture, our ways of doing things. And to sort of address this issue, the, the leaders of the church, kind of, they all gather together in Jerusalem. It's kind of the first like, denominational gathering where leaders get together and like, we've got issues we've got to figure out. Like, we're a couple months into this thing and we've already got big issues to figure out. And over 2,000 years later, we still have got issues we've got to figure out, right? And so they're all gathered there together trying to figure out, what do we do? And, and then Peter, uh, some of you are familiar with Peter, Peter was one of the first followers of Jesus. 
he stands up, and this is what he says in response to the situation. Acts chapter 15, he says, uh, Peter did not, dis- or he, Peter's saying this, that God did not discriminate between us and them. He's talking about a Jewish people and people who don't have a Jewish culture. Uh, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God? Listen to that language. By putting on the necks of Gentiles, Gentiles is just a Bible word that means anyone who's not Jewish, <laughs> a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear. Peter's like, we can't even do a really good job at this formality and law thing, and now we're trying to slap it on top of everyone, and he associates these boundaries with actually testing God. What does he mean by that? Peter has come to believe that the heart of God is that the entire world would respond to the lordship and kingship of Jesus. And therefore, anything that we do to make that hard is creating friction or resistance to the move of God in the world. Peter says, listen, I've been wrong a number of times face-to-face with Jesus, and I'm starting to get this right. He says, why should we do this? Now, you've got to understand, this is a deeply personal issue for Peter. If you read letters like uh, the, the letter of Galatians that Paul wrote to the church of Galatia, we find out that Peter loves his Jewish heritage. And he loves the culture from which he came, and he finds incredible value in it. And he struggles to have a bigger view that says, wow, you don't have to come through this path in order to meet and receive the Gospel. But now he's kind of there, right? And he's understanding, and he's embracing this. Why? Because Peter has come to believe what we regularly preach here. That the Gospel is Jesus plus nothing. You don't add anything to the Gospel. It is the Gospel plus nothing that gives us true peace and true life. Now also in this gathering of leaders is a guy named James. And James is the very brother of Jesus. And James understands exactly what Peter's saying here. That that's right. The Gospel is Jesus plus nothing. You don't have to believe anything else. It's just the Gospel in order to get there. But James understands that there's other implications at play here. That it's not just the embrace of the Gospel, it's also the path to embrace the Gospel. You see it? And so this is what James then stands up and summarizes and says. He says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning, right? It's process. It's not just the moment of decision to God. Incredible statement from this man. Now listen, uh, probably it's true that James is a super smart guy and super wise, and maybe he came up with this on his own, but my guess is that's not the case. See, what James is, is James is a deeply gospel-centered thinker. That is that the teaching and the way of life of his brother, Jesus, has impacted him deeply. So as he's processing this real-life situation, certainly he's leaning on the insights and the move of the Spirit. Certainly he's leaning on his own thinking. But my best understanding here is that he's saying, gosh, if the Gospel is true, then what does it mean for this situation? 
And he comes to a very logical conclusion. That at the end of the day, we can't make it hard for anyone to find Jesus. Now what is he basing this on? Well, let me suggest two things, right? The first thing is that Jesus, when he's, uh, when he's on the earth and when he's asking people to follow him, uh, does it in a very basic way. You might remember this. He comes up to people and he says, hey, follow me. And they say yes or they say no. And it goes from there. Do you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't check their morality. <laughs> he doesn't make them fill out an application. He doesn't uh, check their cultural background. He doesn't make them... Uh, check certain boxes in order to get there. He simply says, follow me. And they say yes. Or they say no. Jesus doesn't make it hard. But I think it's actually something more profound than just this statement of Jesus to follow me. I think it's actually rooted in the essence of the Gospel. And for me, the, the, the beginning and the power and the majesty of the Gospel is actually found in the incarnation of Jesus. Incarnation is a big theological word. It just means that Jesus came from heaven to earth, right? Some of you like chili. I happen to not like chili, right? But some of you like chili con carne, right? What's that mean? Chili with meat, right? So when we say incarnation, we're saying God in the flesh, in real life, tangible touch. Jesus in his incarnation. Think of the implications of this, right? Uh, the whole purpose of Jesus coming is to, is to set us free from sin and death. But he does it by getting right into the mess of our lives and our world. He doesn't do it from far off, nor does he stand in heaven and say, I'm here. See if you can find me. Instead, he removes every obstacle and comes right next door. The, uh, the Apostle John says that he pitched his tent in our neighborhood. <laughs> and lived amongst us in the mess and brokenness of our lives. See, when James is processing this scenario, and he says, we can't make it difficult for anyone to meet Jesus, he's saying, because Jesus didn't make it difficult for anyone to meet Jesus. In fact, he worked hard to remove all of the boundaries to find him. And so friends, when we say, that we believe in casual depth. What we are saying is we believe in creating environments, both corporately as a church, our Sunday gatherings, our community group gatherings, our outreaches like Fall Fest, and you individually because you are the church as you go in how you live and how you react with people. You, we cannot make it hard for people to find Jesus. We cannot expect a certain level of morality or a certain checking the boxes of, of theological orthodoxy or a certain kind of lifestyle uh, or any of these things. We should be people who embrace the incarnation methodology of Jesus that says it's actually incumbent on me to come to you and to remove the boundaries for you to meet Jesus. For us, that means relaxed. It means removing some level of formality. For us, it means laid back and easy. For us, it means you can enter no matter where you are in your spiritual journey. For us, it means you can ask really hard questions and you can have as long as you need to ponder them. 
We believe in the truth of incarnation without expectation. We believe in casual death. However, we also believe in casual depth. Right? You see how I emphasize those differently there? Because though it should not be hard for people to meet Jesus, it is hard for people to stay with Jesus. And the truth of the matter is that if we don't grow deep in our faith, our faith will oftentimes fail. Or said perhaps a little bit deeper this way, that is that if we continue to live in a casual sense in in terms of our embrace of Jesus, when the circumstances of life interact with us, the shallowness of our faith will almost always necessitate our rejection of Jesus. And the New Testament talks about this all of the time. One of my favorite places is in the book of Colossians. Uh, This is uh, a guy named Paul, and he's writing to the church uh, at Colossae, a church that uh, he loves, and a church that he's proud of, and a church that he wants to grow deep in their faith so that they can continue to live the way of Jesus. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, this is what Paul writes. You remember we talked about this last week as well. He says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in Him. It's fascinating, isn't it? For so long growing up in the church, I had this, this understanding of the Gospel that said, the Gospel is the way that you get into the church, and then once you're in, you've got to follow all these rules. Right? So in other words, grace gets you in, and law keeps you in. And that's nowhere in the Bible. That's actually a man-made creation. The Bible says grace gets you in and grace keeps you in. (laughs) In other words, the same way that you have received Jesus as Lord, Paul says, is the way that you grow in Him. The Gospel is not only an entrance to a new way of living, it is the means of a new way of living. And so Paul says, don't leave the gospel at the door. Go deep in it. You've got to go farther and deeper into it. We talk about this all the time here as a church family. That when we go deep in the gospel, the transformation, the first transformation that begins to happen in our lives is not necessarily our external actions, but our internal affections. You hear that? The first transformation that begins to happen is not necessarily our external actions, but our internal affections. There's a pretty famous pastor named Jonathan Edwards who wrote a whole lot and preached a whole lot about affections of our heart. And one of his great uh, beliefs was, and I happen to agree with it, that is when our affections are given to God, that our lives then begin to be given to God. And he doesn't come up with that on his own because this is the regular New Testament teaching. Paul says you go deep in the Gospel. Why? Because when you saturate yourself in the Gospel, what begins to happen is you are completely overwhelmed and immersed with the truth that the God of the universe, powerful enough to do anything He wanted, actually is overwhelmed by His love for you. And has oriented His whole rescue plan about, around the idea of redeeming this world. 
And what begins to happen is you see that God is for you, not against you. Not a God that, that seeks judgment, but a God that seeks restoration of all things. Is that your heart begins to be given to Him. Your affections are open to Him. And as your affections are open to Him, you begin to love God. Right? The New Testament writers, Jesus Himself talks about this all the time. He says, what happens when we experience the love of God in its reality? We start to love God, right? You love because I have first loved you, is, is God's language towards us. And when we begin to love God, something happens inside of us that we start to want to live God's ways. I used the illustration last week. I'll, I'll, I'll use it again. That like when I was young, I was not a pleasant person to be around. This is the story my parents tell. I don't know if it's true or not. But when I was young, I wasn't a pleasant person to be around. You know, I was bitter. I was a middle child of two daughters and trying to figure out my own identity in the midst of that. Um, I was pushing the boundaries uh, all the time. I was challenging. And my parents would ask me to do something, and, you know, sometimes they would say, I don't think it was passive-aggressive, but I think they would say, like, if you loved me, you'd do it. And I, my response, as I told you last week, was, I'm not doing it, you know? Now, how many years later that I've begun to truly understand just how much my parents actually loved me? Not in an intellectual way. Then I knew they loved me. But all these years of understanding it, and now living it, now having kids, and understanding a parent's love, you, you get to this deepening sense of their love for me. And now if my dad called me right now and said, listen, I know you're preaching, but I need you, I'd probably be apt to say, I've got to go be with my dad, church. Sorry, right? What happened there? Did I decide I've got to do my dad's things? No. It's a heart affection transformation. Do you see it? And so this idea of deepening our faith happens when we deepen in the Gospel. It deepens our affections for God, and then it deepens our ability to live the way that God calls us to. Because here's the truth. Jesus asks us to do really hard things. We don't mince words here, right? God loves you. shouldn't be hard to meet Jesus. But if you're going to follow Jesus, He asks us to do some really hard things. Things like die to ourselves. Who wants to hear that? Right? Things like pick up the cross and follow me. Ouch! First it was just follow me, right? Now it's pick up the cross and follow me? What happened? The first will be last, and the last will be first. Love your neighbor as yourself. Care for even the least of these. That's hard stuff. How on earth can we do that? How can we live that way? Only through the depth of the Gospel. Because when the Gospel deepens us, and leads our affections to be turned towards God, something quite natural happens. Jesus summarizes it pretty plainly in John this way. He says, listen, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now the order of this statement is profoundly important because the church has been preaching it backwards for a long time. If you keep my commandments, then you'll show me that you love me. Wrong. That's religion. That's not the Gospel. The Gospel says, but if you love me, like if you've actually received this, and if, if your uh, affections are being transformed, the, the, the fruit of that is going to show itself by you doing the things that I'm calling you to do. 
That's why I hope we hold in tension this idea of more and mature disciples. You heard Rach say it earlier, right? Jesus says, go and make disciples. That means more, and it means mature. It means casual, and it means depth. If we're going to be serious about living the way Jesus calls us to, we're going to have to encourage and challenge each other to go deeper. And some people are going to be ready to do it, and others are going to be just like, I'm still trying to figure this Jesus thing out, and I want you to hear from me. That's okay. You're still welcome here. We love you. You can be here for the next 20 years and still be trying to figure it out. But we're always also going to try to go deeper and challenge you to see a bigger way of living. So a natural question. We don't have time to fully elaborate on this. But this is where my heart goes. Okay, but why? Why would we actually do the Jesus things? Why would we live that way if it seems so hard? And the answer is pretty simple. We do it because we come to believe that the full life that we really long for, the significance, the, the, the security, the acceptance, the satisfaction of the things we hunger for in life, the peace we long for, we've come to actually believe it's actually found in living life the way Jesus calls us to, not just in believing the right theology. In fact, there's a moment <clears throat> in Jesus' ministry and you'll find this tension in Jesus' ministry all the time. Right? We talked about this a little bit. Jesus will have these moments where it's like, hey, follow me. Just follow me. And then crowds will gather around him. And then he'll do some really hard teaching. And things really winnow down, right? <laughs> He's like left with just a small cluster. Everyone else is like, nah, not for me. I'm not going deep. And one of those moments happens. And then Jesus, I can't quite get at what Jesus is after here. Maybe he's experiencing some earthly frustration. I don't know if your theology allows you to go there, but mine kind of does. He turns to his disciples and he's like, are you guys leaving too? <laughs> right? And Peter, in that moment, this is what he says. Fascinating. So Simon Peter answered him. He said, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words that lead to full life. In other words, I'm still not sure, Jesus, that the things you're asking me to do make a whole lot of sense. They're very countercultural, and they're certainly counterintuitive. But I have so profoundly come to believe that your words lead to the full life that I long for that I, there's nowhere else I can go. Why do we obey Jesus? Because we've come to believe that. You see it? Now listen, it takes time, <laughs> right? You don't suddenly turn the corner and be like, I'm doing all the Jesus things now. That's why we've got to encourage each other to go deeper. It's why stories of hope is so radically important in our gathering together, that we're sharing and hearing and encouraging as we're pushing together in this Jesus thing. Listen, following Jesus is hard. First, because he asks us to do hard things, and he doesn't mince words. But secondly, it's hard because the world is pushing against us. Listen to how Colossians chapter 2 goes on in verse 7. Let's read from the screen. He says, listen, the same way that you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, so live in him. And then he begins to describe that. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Last week we talked about this idea that gratitude is a catalyst to gospel growth. Right? Listen, he says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Right? Uh, maybe your experience with church when you grew up was like, the church was like science and philosophy. These are evil things. That's not what Paul's talking about here. Right? Philosophy in its ancient sense is the idea of 
a theory of the meaning and purpose of life, right? Why you exist and what this all means. And Paul is not arguing against the reality of philosophy. He's arguing that there are lots of philosophies and the gospel is the right one. <laughs> you see it? And if you haven't grown deep, you're going to be pulled in all kinds of directions because the world is giving you all kinds of options, right? Here's my illustration of it. Have you ever decided on a Friday night, you know, I'm going to veg out tonight. I'm just going to watch a movie on Netflix. You made this decision before? And what you've realized is you've just entered into the great abyss, right? Because if you haven't pre-planned what you were going to watch, you will now spend the rest of your life, forget Friday night, attempting to figure out what's going to make sense of this. This is the imagery of Paul here, right? You're going to be blown all over the place trying to figure this stuff out. But if you grow deep roots in the gospel, you'll see pieces of truth in what humans are constructing because we're all after the same thing, but you'll understand that it's only found in Jesus as Lord who gives us full life and peace. And philosophy not bad. It just can't get you there to the right place. It's asking the right questions. And listen, in our world, our flesh, our world speaks to all kinds of things, right? Life's all about pleasure, hedonism. Life's all about you, humanism. Life's all about procuring your own identity, right? Life's all about making God happy. That's a philosophy called religion. You should reject that. And Paul's basically saying, like, if you're a plant out there, you've got forces tugging both ways on you. And the force that's holding you into the ground better be stronger than the one that's pulling you out. You got it? Because if it isn't, then one of two things is going to happen. You're going to be completely uprooted or you're going to be broken and snapped into pieces. You see it? Paul says the only way to avoid this or to live in the midst of this plurality of thinking is to go deep in the gospel. Now listen, I have a love-hate relationship with trees, right? It's not just birds, it's also trees. Actually, not true. I have a hate-hate relationship with birds. I have a love-hate relationship with trees. Trees have never done, well, trees have done some things to me, not like birds, but here's my love-hate relationship with trees. I think trees are incredible, aren't they? They're so beautiful and majestic. I just would prefer not to have any on my property, right? Because they're impossible to clean up. It falls about to happen, right? And it's a misery for us, you know? Think about trees with me for a minute. I apologize. I was a divergent path. I ought not go down. Uh, think about trees with me for a minute. Like the root structure and system of trees, right? What's your favorite kind of tree? I love redwood trees. Someday I would so love to get to California and see a redwood tree in person. You've seen the pictures, right? Of people, the cars and the people next to them. Right? Some of these trees are like 370 feet tall, 37-story buildings of a tree. 12 million pounds they've been estimated to be. And some of them are over 2,000 years old. That means they were here when Jesus was walking the earth. Think about that. They've withstood all of these things. How is that even possible? Redwood trees have a fascinating root structure. That is, they don't have a traditional tap root that just goes down as far as it can go down. But they have a whole series of roots that go deep and wide. It's estimated that the root structure of a single redwood tree encompasses far more than, a, than an acre of land. Think about that for a minute. This is what Paul is talking about. 
that it's not just about going singularly deep in a theological, doctrinal study so you've got all those things connected. It's about growing all those lines of purpose that Rachel talked about earlier that are connected to our hope in heaven. Many different gospel roots deep in all kinds of places so that when the hurricanes or the storms or the winds of would-be gospels come, we're solid where we are. You know what else is fascinating about redwood trees? Is that they exist in forests, right? And so you'll almost never see a redwood tree by itself because their roots are intended to intertwine with other trees. And so a great reality of their stability is that their root systems provide support for other trees and for each other. When we talk about depth at Hope, we're not just talking about uh, deep sermons or deep thinking about what it means to follow Jesus, we need depth in relationship with each other. Because there are going to be times in your life, and some of you are in it right now, when your faith alone ain't going to cut the mustard. And you're going to need the faith of all of us to help see you through. I've been there, and my guess is I'll be there again sometime in the future. It doesn't speak to your weakness. It speaks to the reality of living life in this world. So we've got to go deep. It's our only way to stick with Jesus, who is the one who gives us the fullness of life. That's our vision at Hope. That anytime we gather, whether it's just a group of friends together, a Sunday morning gathering, a Sunday morning teaching, a community group time together, that we're always trying to go deeper, finding the tension of casual and deep, challenging each other to think about the gospel and its implications on the current situations of our life so that we can be interwoven in our roots, deep in our roots, and able to be this growing forest of trees that God himself often uses as the illustration of his people. At Hope, we are defined by the value casual depth. That means it should not be hard to meet Jesus. And we need to tear down any boundary that exists that's keeping people from meeting Jesus. But at the same time, it's really hard to stay with Jesus. So we've got to go deep and encourage and challenge each other to go deep. Can I pray with you?